This is Rainamo's podcast, The Creative Mindset. Welcome to The Creative Mindset, a podcast about the art of building a career through conversations with the world's leading practitioners of creativity. It's an intimate journey on how they got started, their turning points, failures, and tips on work and life. I am your host, Ray Inamoto, the founding partner of I & Co., a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Ian Spouter, the man behind the design of Instagram. He's currently leading design at Meta on its Metaverse initiative. He resides in Tokyo, where we recorded our conversation a little while ago. If you haven't listened to part one of my conversation with Ian, please do have a listen. Part two is about how he nurtures creativity in a not so creative work environment by introducing what Ian calls the state of play, especially in Japan where things can be a little rigid. He also shares his thoughts on why talent is overrated, as well as his experience on being a black designer and what helped him when building his own career. It wasn't really about him, but who was around him. After the conversation, I will share my three key takeaways that are important to the creative mindset. So let's get started. You know, where you and I come from、uh, early in your career, creativity was, I might say, assumed or expected. You know, people around us wanted us designers to be creative, and that was our job. You, having gone to the big tech companies where other aspects of the business, whether it's Financial reasons or technical reasons, creativity might be, might not be, you know, the most important thing. So how do you train or how do you encourage an organization to be more creative? Yeah. I mean, y e a h one of my favorite parts about working in the agencies is the fact that you, there are these moments that you feel like you're in this creative beehive, right? And you, and ideas are the,、uh, kind of currency, you know, that you live on. And, Whereas I think in a lot of organizations, you usually need to get things out into the world, but in the agency side, it could just be the, the pitch deck, right? Is the output.、Um, but, you know, when I got into some tech companies, like you say, having those ideas and those well designed things、um, was not enough, right?、Um, and you're working with people who, Wouldn't necessarily frame themselves as creative, even though they might be making, like engineers, of course, have to be pretty creative in their jobs to do what they do. But there's not as much space for the type of creative thinking I think we're talking about usually. I think what I was able to do in some instances is help design as a practice、um, have more space to do better work by introducing kind of Creativity into the process of working through problems.、Um, you know, I think as kids, we know how to be creative, right? You know, children, it comes pretty natural.、Mm -hmm. there, isn't, there aren't these fears around being judged as much about your creative production. If you're in a sandbox, you're not really thinking about, like, you might think about whether you're a sand. Tower is higher than the person next to you, but we're all just playing in the sand, right? And there's a lot of freedom in that. You lose that over time as an adult.、Mm. And so, the way I, would, I approached it in tech companies is to figure out how to get adults to、um, be in more of a state of play, 
that usually evolved in or involved experiments with creating interesting constraints and kind of exercises to take people through. Um, some of them might be kind of gimmicky, but they worked. <laughs> There's an example at Foursquare I mentioned, like, you know, you would check in places and you'd get, you know, some sort of response. And we were redesigning that at one point. And, um, and I think designers felt like there was a lot of tension in trying to get everyone on the same page with what it should do in that moment. And so, what we did was we took a, a Monopoly board, the Monopoly game board, and we basically scripted, like just, you know, analog scripted, um, a scenario uh, at each block, right? And so, the idea was that everyone who's in that meeting could, you know, roll the dice as they would play Monopoly and they'd land on a spot on Monopoly. And then the designer would call out a scenario. You just checked into the coffee shop for the 10th time. You just went to the place, the restaurant that your friend recommended for the first time. And then everyone in that meeting had about 30 seconds to sketch out in a, with a big marker what the application should show you in that moment. And that meeting was A, probably more of more fun meetings you'd go to that day. Two, forced everyone to draw, but draw in a very you know, broad stroke way. You didn't have a half hour to sketch out the idea. You had 30 seconds, right? And what I find with those sorts of experiments is when people have to not just talk about something, they have to actually draw it. And then you have something new to talk about as a group, which changes the sorts of conversations you have, which then also changes the type of work that the designer is then able to do. Because now they have everyone to put their cards on the table about what they think, right? You know, um, and so those, that was a, a good lesson for me to do, take opportunities to do that, to change the sort of conversations you have about the work by introducing play. Another example at YouTube, um, uh, YouTube as a product, you can, when you think of YouTube, it's kind of like this database of videos, you know, it's, it hasn't changed that much over the time it exists, it has existed. So as a design team, you know, you're working in very constrained problems all the time. And I wanted to get the design group to remind themselves that they all come from very prestigious design backgrounds. I wanted to re remind them that they're creative people. So I would use our time together as a group to do these similar design exercises, usually very timed. I'd throw out some sort of prompt or brief, and in a very short amount of time, groups of people would have to produce something. So it could be, you know, what if YouTube was a wearable object or something like that, right? Um, and so I basically every week would do this with the team. And in this case, the outcome wasn't so much that we had, you know, a, a new solution to a given problem. It was a way to um, energize the team, get people used to working with others on the team that they wouldn't normally work with. So, there was a relationship building aspect to it. Three, get them into a rhythm of being generative, which is another thing that uh, sometimes you, tech companies want to get to the answer as quickly as possible. So, you don't usually have the time or, or it's, not, it's, it's you might get pushback that you need the time to think through options, um, but you can actually get to options very quickly if you build up those muscles, right? And so, getting the team practice it and learning how to be generative really quickly. Um, so, that stuff paid dividends later, you know, when we would do an actual design sprint or, you know, um, when people had to work together on some other high pressure project, they had built up some of these muscles. So, this aspect of, aspect of um, getting people into a state of play, introducing play into the work environment, into the work experience of working through problems, um, 
is something that um something I have enjoyed doing and I think is is really relevant. And I'm not the only one that's done this. Other people have like designed sprint frameworks and stuff like that, which do a bit of this, I think. But um finding the right constraints, uh encouraging people to be generative in their problem solving. These are all skills that are useful, I think, in business broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I've I've approached it. Another topic that related to creativity that I want to dig deep a bit is is creativity nurture or nature Mm. you know how much of and it may not be such a black and white thing you know it is talent nature or it is nurture that you can be taught there's a mix of it but how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture you think you know if you you heard the saying uh let me get it right um Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, right? And I've, I would, I think I approach it much more from, I think there's much more through nurture um, because there's so much lost through nurture. That makes sense, right? I think, as, I think humanity could be far more creative uh, if we were taught to be, in that, if that was valued and, and taught in schools and things like that. And I think we do a lot less of that. So we've probably lost more um, by not, not thinking of it more, much more of a, as a nurture problem, if that makes sense. Of course, there are people that are just wildly talented and are just wired for creative thinking. Um, and in those cases, maybe they might quote unquote beat you know, um, others you know, who are not as natu- naturally talented. But I think we know that there's no, nothing, all the best designers I know, uh, n- they just know how to work, right? And they've, or if, they've, if they are at a level where they can be really efficient and cut through things really quickly, they certainly have gone through a period where they've honed their skills in kind of a grinding way. And so that willingness to work, I think, is a type of nurturing, right? It's, it's developed. Um, and if anything, the natural part is that um, passion and desire and that drive more so than better visual acuity or something like that, you know, something that's like genetic. What, what you were saying about introducing play into the workplace or even business, mm-hmm. one thing that I took away from what you were saying was, you know, for people to be open, mm-hmm. right? The other thing, and I think this sort of relates to the Japanese cultural uh, context where we Japanese people are taught to be, to pursue what's right in terms of questions. You know, is this the right answer for this question? Yeah. I think what, what, what I took away from what you were saying was that by introducing play, you are trying to get rid of the fear of being wrong or fear of being, oh, you know, is this the right answer? Worrying about it. Would you would you say that's uh, that's what you were doing with these uh, exercises and plays? That's a big part of it. Is that to to give yourself the ability to be wrong um, and the freedom to be wrong, uh, because that's usually what constrains any, you know, ideas. Like when you're tight, you know, you can't come up with new things. But um, yeah, culturally, one thing I've learned here is that. There's a general sense that there's a right way and a wrong way, <laughs> and and yeah, good luck if you if you if you've learned all the right ways to do things. But that is that is something that feels like deep within the culture here. Yeah, I mean, you've been here for about three years now, yeah. and you know, you you do work in uh, 
in in an American yeah. centric company. Right. So you know your view within the day to day office work might be a little bit skewed. Totally. But yeah. you know with your encounters with other Japanese organizations, uh, either professional or personal situations. Um, what are what are aspects of Japan that that you find to be, you know, quote unquote, creative or interesting and different? And what are aspects of come uh, of Japan that you think could be a bit more creative? Hmm. Well, I think in daily life here, you see these you know um, unexpected places where there's creativity, like the fact that there's so many little characters on everything here. You know, that somebody's making those things, and that's valued some way, or the sounds you hear in the subway or things like that. There's these moments of uh, creativity and artistry kind of sprinkled in, you know, throughout daily life here in a way that I, I haven't seen other places really. Um, and I think that there is a commitment, that commitment to getting it right uh, and being very precise with the work and, and committed to getting something done at a very high quality um, and that being a lifelong pursuit is you know, not 100% unique to here, but this is, this is, this place is known for that level of, of commitment to excellence, right? But a, a humble excellence usually, right? One of my favorite things to do is meet um, different shokunin and Shokunin, yeah. visit their studios. And, and I get tremendous inspiration, but when you go in there and you see their tool sets or you see what they're doing, they're, that's their every day. So they're like, oh, you want to take a picture of that? Oh, I guess that's fine. <laughs> but, but, you know, but I'm just like, this is amazing. What you do here is amazing every day. And it's like, yeah, that's what I do. And, you know, my father did it. My father's father did it. Like it goes back, you know, so there's that sort of um, special creativity that exists here, which I think is pretty, pretty unique. What kind of shok yeah, shokuni have you met? A um, bunch. Um, so some... Folks in Kyoto, like everything from like uh, uh, Kiyoke makers, as Nagagawa-san, uh, he, he's like more of an artist, I'd say, but he comes from a, um, a key, uh, like a wood wood basket maker, right? But he does lots of like more organic forms as well. And so he's made a name for himself um, by making more unique objects. Um, Taka at Kaikado, like um, tea caddies. Uh, learning about not just kind of the materials that they use and, and the you, the specific materials, like they use a very specific tin because of how it will patina over time. And these are things that, you know, I don't think about day to day. So I'm like amazed by them, right? Or, um, you know, different uh, ceramicists as well. Uh, you know, there's lots of different ceramics here. It's such a deep rabbit hole you can go into. So I've been to different kilns. Um, yeah, I, I, something I... I love to do, you know, and if I can, I, I will go. I went to the craft fair in Matsumoto in spring and saw all the different work and yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, your time in Japan, you've, you've spent about three years or so and I'd love to get your observations about both Japanese culture and particularly Japanese businesses mm -hmm. um, and uh, tell us a little bit of, you know, observations uh, that you make, mm. uh, you've made about, about Japan, just yeah. in general? Well, let's see. Observations. Wow. Um, okay, let's start with, with, with business. I think I have a deep appreciation for my colleagues who work at Instagram and at Meta more broadly. Um, and I think I have a deeper appreciation for what it is that they do in the sense that they have to balance multiple worlds. You know, they have the traditional Japanese world where they 
need to interface with Japanese com- companies and clients and ways of working amongst themselves. They're in an interesting position because they're in this weird kind of working in a Western way, but still with mostly Japanese. Um, they have to deal with uh, in the way that a, a Western company works, which means things like last minute changes, which is like a no-no, right? You know, and, and things changing on a dime. And it's like, I thought you were going to do this, but now you're doing that. So I have a deeper appreciation for the pain that they have to go through to balance those two worlds, right? Um, and then kind of maybe focus on that tension a little bit. I think Japanese companies and professionals, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into creating a plan, right? And to getting everyone on the same page with creating a plan to do something. And then execution, you know, there's no excuse but to get to that delivery and usually at a high level of quality. Where the struggle is is when there are changes and adaptability um, seems to be more of an issue here. Uh, And being able to say, oh, wait, the conditions have changed. What do we need to do and adapt? That's hard, which is interesting. Um, And I wonder about what the implications are for things like software. I don't like a lot of software in Japan isn't, very good. <laughs> it's 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 almost odd, <laughs> like websites and things. It's like why is this like this? And and I, it, I I'd love to understand more why, but that's an interesting observation because Japan has this um, air of being very advanced technologically, and in some ways it really is. I mean, I would say it's you know if you think about infrastructure and things like that, it's I don't know if the United States will ever get to the level of rail infrastructure that Japan has, you know. But when it comes to like using a bank website, it's like, good luck, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, and that's really interesting to me. And I wonder if, if there's something about the culture uh, and that software con- culture is very adaptable, iterative, you're, you're moving quickly, you know, whether that, you know, um, comes into play. So, just yeah. to, to yeah. expand on that, that's yeah. an interesting observation um, because when you look at the progress of Japan as a nation, as a country, and the economic powerhouse that it had once become mm-hmm. after the World War II, mm-hmm. you know, since uh, 1945 all the way to say like 1990s, mm-hmm. the car industry, the uh, electronics the industry, yeah. yeah. And most of it is based on hardware products, yep. like objects, things that you make. Right. And Japanese companies have and had excelled yeah. at those industries. Yeah. But Japanese countries, uh, companies and businesses have struggled to adapt to this software digital centric world. And yeah, the observation that you just shared with us, um, I've thought about a similar topic, but I hadn't thought about in a way that you described, which is, is it because Japanese processes are in a, in a way quite organized and very on time, everything's mm-hmm. on time, you know. Very reliable. Yeah, very reliable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if something gets delivered, uh, somebody says that you will get delivered, you will get delivered. You will get there. You will get there. You will get there. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if the lack of adaptability uh, mm-hmm. is one of the the challenges mm-hmm. that Japanese companies may f- are facing mm-hmm. uh, with a lack of advancement in software side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, software moves quickly, adapts mm-hmm. You know, and you have to make changes often, you know, especially modern software processes. It's like you're releasing all the time. And and I wonder if that's antithetical. I don't know if it's culturally, but certainly, you know, how companies tend to work here. And I know that's that's a 
very broad stroke there. Yeah. Uh, last few questions mm -hmm. uh, just before we wrap up. Uh, one of the topics I also wanted to bring up um, is being a minority. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in Japan until I was 15 or so, but mm. since 16, I've been living overseas mm. and um, I was, I, 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 I'm still a minority there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you've, although from a different uh, cultural background and different perspective, you've been a minority uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your, um, I don't know if you had advantage and disadvantage growing up uh, or just working as mm -hmm. a minority designer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then here, you know, you are an outsider, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you might have this advantage and disadvantage. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your challenges that, uh, mm -hmm. that you may have faced and how you overcame. I, I had some, I was very fortunate in my early career in that I had managers who were also minorities. Um, you know, whether it's Omar Wasso, who was an entrepreneur and, um, he was also unbiracial and he was also the same, same mix as me, or even at RJ, I worked under Winston <laughs> Dominican, very, very loud Dominican guy. Uh, you know, so that you had, I had these moments where I had other people managing me that, and that's something I try to take into account when I see younger, uh, designers, because that's where I often see it go wrong, you know, where people who are managing them and in charge of their career don't have an understanding of that person's challenges. And, and by challenges, I don't mean things like their ability. I think the part that I've gotten taste of uh, is a sort of a bias in terms of what's expected of you or people that look like me. Um, and so when you're applying for a job, for instance, there's always a benefit of the doubt that needs to be given. You've not done the job, the exact job that you're applying for. And so companies interview to figure out whether they think you could do the job. But there's always a doubt. And so there's always a question of like, well, who gets the benefit of the doubt and say, ah, I think they're all right. And I've found in my career that I usually have to do a lot more to, um, uh, I've had to do a lot more to um, pass that bar of doubt. Um, and I think it's easier now because I've done the things that I've done. You build up these little, you know, these little, I don't know what you want to call them, these little bits of validity to say, oh, you did Nike work, great. Oh, you did, you know, which other designers go through, right? You get these little stamps and then, you know, that that's meaningful for when you want to do the next thing. But that, that sense of like, well, you can't be really that good, right? You know, that, that kind of look, you know, or that having to do that extra loop or those extra questions or that extra bit because they just can't possibly imagine that you would be that level. Um, and then that cuts the other way is the reason that is it's maybe because there's biases because they've worked with people that look like you and maybe that person wasn't good at their job, which then means that when you do, when you take on that job, you are um, now going to reflect on other people that look like you that come after you. I felt that at RGA, actually, right? Um, then when I joined uh, back in those days, I learned later that there was a designer uh, um, who hadn't done well, right? And that was kind of reflected even on, on the level of kind of interviewing that I went through. there. And so there have been moments like that throughout my career. But I would say that I've also been privileged to, you know, had other leaders that have uh, been minorities and that's been really helpful to my career. Um, so I feel like pretty blessed um, to have had them in, in, in my life and, and something I think about with young designers and how I help develop them. Mm -hmm. 
what advice would you give to young Japanese people? People in their 20s, let's say, you know, starting their careers. It's a hard question to answer because as a foreigner, I might have my perspective. I might say, you know, learn to be more adaptable, push against the grain, help change the company, be, country, you know, be active. But, you know, there's, there, there's realities of doing that. And I think living here has taught me that for, for every person that stands out here, they're taking a lot of risks to do that. And they're leaving, you know, they, there's significant trade-offs that they're making to stand out. And so, um, I would encourage young people to build communities, creative communities, think, of, uh, embrace the richness of Japanese culture because it is something that I think the world does uh, value and needs to. Um, you know, that when I, going back to the shokunin thing, a lot of these crafts are dying because not enough people value them today. And so, I would encourage young people to look at some of the roots of Japanese culture that have been developing over thousands of years and keep those things alive, make them new again. And you see signs of this in, in certain, uh, you know, towns outside of Tokyo developing small communities to um, reinvigorate a different way of living that is like uniquely Japanese, but also new. And I would love to see more of that happening because I think it's something that the world actually needs outside of just, you know, um, following the duty of like going to school and doing what, what's expected. Um, I think there are opportunities to help Japan as a nation um, develop and find a bridge between the old and create a new new. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'd love to see that. So, cool. yeah. Coming out of this conversation with Ian, there are three key takeaways that are important to nurturing the creative mindset. Number one, the permission and the freedom to be wrong is essential to creativity. Ian talked about what he calls the state of play, simple activities and exercises such as drawing or games that get people out of their comfort zone. He uses these exercises for his team to let them go out of their daily routines and come up with not just ideas, but just be in a place where they can be wrong and it's okay to be wrong. If you are a young person building a career, I think it would benefit for you to look for a manager or people who give you that kind of permission to be wrong. It's not easy to find, but I think if you can come across a manager or leader who allows people around them to be wrong, I think that's a sign of potential nurturing of creativity. Or if you are in a position to manage and lead other people, then provide that space for your team to be wrong and allow people to disagree with you. Number two, humility is underrated. Ian talked about his hobby of going to visit shokunin, which means a craft person or an artisan in Japan. People who, by hand, make typically traditional daily objects such as chopsticks, sandals, baskets, or wooden buckets. And these shokunins would make these daily utility objects 
by hand, sometimes quite painstakingly. He called this a commitment to humble excellence. And it was、uh, refreshing to hear from somebody who's been living in my home country and observed there's that kind of humble excellence in simple tasks such as making these daily objects. And I appreciated how that kind of commitment goes a long way in creating things and nurturing creativity. Number three. Representation does matter. Ian talked about earlier in his career, he said that he was lucky to have a boss or bosses in a few different、uh, environments, people who are of color. He said that it wasn't lost on him back then, but also realized that later in his career, when he was in a position to manage others, that it makes a difference for people under him, especially. For those who are of people of color or of the, of the minority background. So, three key takeaways. Number one, the permission and the freedom to be wrong is essential to creativity. Number two, humility is underrated. And number three, representation does matter. Hope you enjoyed the last two episodes with Ian Spouter, the former head of design at Instagram. And the current head of design at Meta for the Metaverse Initiative. In the next episode, we will share a story from Cindy Gallup, the founder and the CEO of Make Love Not Porn and the former CEO of BBH US. She shares her insights on how she went from an intern to a CEO of one of the most successful creative companies in the world. So stay tuned. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I am Rei Namoto, and this is the Creative Mindset. See you next time.